0: Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed the holidays and are more than ready to move on to a fresh and hopeful 2021. I certainly am myself. I know that. In today's episode, we will highlight the article in the January edition of EMS World entitled Gorillas in the Mist, What EMS Should Know About Street Medics by John Erick, Senior Editor. John does a great job in this article introducing us to this world of street medicine. And how to help us understand even better, we are very lucky to have the self-proclaimed grandmother of street medics, Miss Anne Hirschman, with us today. Anne, welcome to EMS World Podcasts.
1: Hi. How you doing, Michael? I I just want to debunk one thing. I did not decide to be the grandmother of street medics. (laughs) <laughs> Several of the younger medics actually used that term apparently with a Times reporter a few months ago, and suddenly I became the grandmother of street medics. I'm old, and I have been a street medic since before there were written protocols for street medics, but I'm the only grandmother I am is to my adorable grandchildren, so... <laughs>
0: But it makes you sound so important. So we'll so we'll keep it. We'll you know just just wear it. It it works well for you.
1: I, I'm the grandmother because I love them every single one of them. I could accept that.
0: Perfect. So, Anne, um, you're a licensed nurse practitioner, and you've been active in demonstrations since the '60s. Uh, You were a member of the Medical Committee for Human Rights, which was an organization founded in 1964 and is essentially the cornerstone of the street medic platform. So there's a whole lot to unpack here. But as far as this and as we get started, tell the listeners what a street medic actually is
1: okay so back in the 60s there were some of us who were medical professionals i was a nurse there were doctors there were not even emts yet because emts hadn't been invented yet um but there were various levels of medical professional and medical students who were part of the civil rights movement and then the anti-war movement and we realized fairly quickly that there were far more demonstrators than there were doctors nurses and other trained professionals And there were a lot of people asking for training. So some of us in MCHR got together a training sort of schedule for street medics. Originally it was a weekend, a couple of days, um, and started training people who had no other medical training on how to do first aid during, specifically during big political demonstrations. The difference between that and, say, your Red Cross first aid course would be the addition of things that the Red Cross never had to deal with, um, chemical weapons, handcuff injuries, nightstick injuries, all of these things that came up during demonstrations, trampling injuries, how to deal with a situation where there was tear gas all over the place. All of these things were part of our training that had not been part of previous trainings. And that's where we started. And now what we do is show up whenever we're asked by people who are doing demonstrations. And we have, there are kinds of two basic kinds of street medics. There are street medics that are running specifically as street medics, and they're part of the demonstration. And they will, they work with everyone who may or may, may get hurt or may need a band-aid for their toe or some water or whatever. There are also street medics who do those things, but who are working not with a specific street medic group, but with what we call an affinity group. So this would be, for instance, if some of the Black Lives Matter people from a particular area were an organized group, they might bring two or three street medics as part of their group. We call these affinity groups street medics. And we all work together very seamlessly we can all be relied upon if we have the street medic training and are vouched for we can all be relied upon for certain ethics and certain professional ways that we work with people
0: okay so so that's great so there's again there's a lot of there's a lot of different groups there's a lot of different subsections but you all integrate together and i think it's kind of a misnomer to say that the it's a street medic right because we said they they come from different disciplines some are paramedics, some are EMTs, some are nurses, some are just first responders that went through the training. So to say street medic, maybe not not as specific as that, but it's somebody that is going to render care during these types of demonstrations.
1: That's true, but when we say street medic, we do have a a basic um, level of training. And experience that someone calling themselves a street medic must demonstrate in order to call themselves a street medic.
0: Tell me a little bit about that, Anne. What what is that? Is there a specific course that there is for street medics? Is that something that you had a hand in developing? Is that something that's standard across the board?
1: Well, I had a hand in developing it. Yeah, there were three of us sitting in my apartment in New York one time in 1967, deciding that we had to put on paper those things that we had been teaching people. So we did. I actually still have a copy from year one. Uh, And at the time, it was two fairly heavy duty days of being trained on how to do things. Uh, things for instance I'm a nurse practitioner I did not learn for instance how to safe how to with one other person safely move an injured person in the middle of a demonstration that's one of the things we teach I did not learn in nursing school or nurse practitioner school how to deal with chemical weapons or how to deal with any of those things and we do have a standardized curriculum if you will a stand a course standard it's a little bit different there are minor variations, collective to collective, but most of us are teaching the same basic skills that we've been teaching over the course of the last 50 plus years, of course, with more modern understandings than we had 50 years ago.
0: Sure. And and I think that to say that it's an altruistic type group, right? So it's, it's a group that is obviously based in some type of activism, yep. I would assume, one that supports a cause, but really is about. The health and the well-being of those that are part of the protests, and and I think that with that comes the question: How does it integrate with conventional EMS? How does it integrate with law enforcement? What are some of those experiences that you've had uh, throughout these many years that you've been part of this?
1: Well, I've had experiences that have been very mixed. Okay, I'm sure. Um, I've had a few concussions and stuff. Uh, Created by the fact that I would be doing first aid in a position, situation where perhaps someone in law enforcement was not happy with me doing that first aid. And occasionally they took it out on my poor, unsuspecting little head. Uh, <laughs> I have- uh, because street medics, even today, are not recognized by law enforcement in any kind of meaningful way. So it's going to be an individual to individual difference. Um, I've been at demonstrations where at one end of the line of March, I was in danger of being clocked upside the head. And six blocks later, I was talking to a gold shield who was able to get me and a patient out of the situation where we were trapped by the demonstration and into a situation where I could take that patient to, as it turned out, an EMS unit where they were able to transport that patient to a safe hospital where they got definitive care. So, And in the same demonstration, I've had a concussion on one end and a really productive interaction with law enforcement halfway up the block. It's very variable. I personally always try to have at least a neutral, cooperative interaction with any law enforcement that I come in contact with. Um, The last demonstrations that I I remember having really positive were in Philadelphia, which is uncharacteristic of Philadelphia, uh, during the Democratic Convention in 2016. We had really good relations with, with all of the EMS and police. We almost always have great relations with EMS because once an EMS person is talking to a medic, they're going to talk medic. They're gonna talk. This is a patient. This is what's going on with the patient. This is what this patient needs.
0: Do you find that it's a good transition over to conventional EMS? Do they listen to you? Do they accept it? And are they are they taking that information and utilizing it? Or are they giving the giving you the, yeah, 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 we'll take it from here?
1: Um, I've had both happen. Uh, One of the things that my personal practice involves is that the patient owns their medical record for instance. So I tend to take a Sharpie marker and write the significant things about what's going on right on the patient. And that leaves the EMS people to look at the patient, look at what we've written on the patient, listen to our voice and say, oh, okay, that looks right. And it generally fosters communication.
0: Is there a specific is there identification and that you have that you folks are wearing or um, whether it's a, a uniform or a vest or something like that?
1: In general, some of us wear armbands or buttons or vests. It varies that varies demonstration by demonstration. In Chicago in 1968 was the first time I took we used to wear Red Cross armbands. In Chicago in 68, when the, gov- when the mayor got on TV and said they must be planning violence, they brought their own medics, get the medics, we decided to basically go underground. We continued doing all our medical activities. We identified ourselves verbally as medics, but wearing medic insignia was getting people injured, so we stopped doing that because <laughs> medicine.
0: Yeah. I, I think that really what the point of this is, is that it, it comes down to awareness and recognition. And it's not, it's not different than anything else. I mean, let's just be honest. EMS in general is still looking for that awareness and acceptance in many areas. And I think that once that awareness, that acceptance is, is uh, fostered, then what's going to happen is it's going to show that ultimately this is about the patient and it's about doing good for others. And in your article, there's something that uh, about Austin, Travis County EMS, and how they integrated with some of the street medics there. And basically just accepted that, yes, they are here and we're going to utilize them so that we can maximize the care delivered. And what it did was it fostered a relationship that obviously expedited care that was delivered and and it worked out beautifully. And I think that that's something that is going to you know find itself more in today's world with everything that we're dealing with, because it's not going to stop. It's not going to end.
1: Exactly. I mean, people, there's a couple of myths about street medics that somebody thought, we. people have thought we get paid. We don't get paid. We buy our own equipment. We buy our own stuff. We tr- pay for our own travel. It's like, we're pretty altruistic. My, my elevator speech about street medics when I'm asked by paramedics and EMTs and police officers is to remind you all, and believe me, I love working with street medics. About half of my Um, street medics that I know of have become EMTs and paramedics and nurses and doctors. Our job is to be where you can't. Okay. Our job is to be in the middle of the crowd. When everybody takes their BLS every year, the first thing they say is first check the scene and see if the scene is safe. And if the scene is not safe, don't go there. And that, that is absolutely where you all are. In your, and of course, we break that rule all the time for our patients. But with street medics, our job is to be where the danger is. Our job is to be part of the unsecured areas, part of the where things are coming down. And what we do is try and stabilize in place if we can. And if we can't, then our job is to get that person to you all, to the to the EMTs and the and those who are working with the professional hospitals who do the transports, so that our patient, our shared patient, can then be trans- stabilized further and transported to definitive care. That's what we do. So we die, and we get the patient, and then we share the patient with you, so y'all can get him to definitive care. Uh,
0: of course, and what type of equipment? do you pack out? I'm assuming it's stripped down. I'm I'm assuming it's basic. What type of gear and and equipment do you carry typically at a regular demonstration?
1: At a regular demonstration, it is basic first aid. It's bandages, it's slings, it's enough vet wrap to wrap the world. I think vet wrap's probably the best thing since sliced bread. (laughs) can't live without it. Uh, but it is really basic water, lots and lots of water, mostly for chemical weapons um, treatment and pressure bandages and whatever we can carry. Um, most of us will carry a backpack or wear a vest. I tend to be a vest person because I'm little and I'm not terribly physically strong, so I don't carry a lot of weight. But um, it's not about weight. It's about in what's in our heads and what do we have around and we can always recruit other people. Hey, do you have a scarf? Hey, do you have a book I can use as a splint? Hey, do you have, and we'll grab our equipment from the crowd around us about half the time.
0: Yeah, a total improvisation, which is, is great. With the George Floyd uh, protests and the Black Lives Matter, is this something that you have been um, partaking in recently?
1: I have not gone out recently as in this past year. Uh, I'm 74 years old now, and so I define high risk for COVID. But also, um, as many 74-year-olds have, I have some health problems. And me being in the middle of a demonstration-type situation, uh, especially a longstanding demonstration situation where the local community is also being impacted on a daily, is not something that I'm doing right now because I don't want to be the lady from New Jersey who suddenly showed up in Seattle in the middle of demonstration time has a heart attack in the streets and takes very deeply needed resources away from local people who are doing the actual work to support the demonstrators. So I now do training. I will go out when I'm local. I certainly will be back out on the streets doing demonstrations when there are times when that would not take away from other people. But I also have to be responsible
0: very interesting in in switching gears a little bit and there was there was a comment in the article by one of the street medics that said that their their job was to prevent illness and injury in many uh, aspects of this and i think that's interesting because i think that parallels very much a lot of the stuff that we're doing in EMS today whether it's community-based paramedicine or mobile integrated health i think that it's very much on par with what it is we're trying to accomplish and in, in trying to manifest our our capabilities in EMS. And and you have been doing it since the sixties. I mean you're you're tending to the underserved, the underprivileged Those individuals that don't really have access to care. And I know that you had said to me earlier on that this is something that's been happening since the 60s. People continue to carry on in the street medic world, taking care of these folks and preventing things, preventing injury and illness. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. We frequently start with when people are planning demonstrations. One of the things that I've been doing since the 60s and all of us have is reminding people to bring the water during a summer demonstration, reminding people to have sufficient warm clothing, good shoes, you know, not wearing high heels to a demonstration, no flip flops, take out your earrings, basic safety procedures, things we learned early on. Get rid of everybody's uh, contact lenses. Huge. If there's going to be tear gas, I mean, there was a guy who got blinded in 68 because he did not realize he had to get those lenses out quickly. And by the time he got his lenses out after being tear gassed, he had scarring on his corneas. He required cornea surgery. So those are things that we've been trying to prevent from day one. And we're forever doing, you know, corn plasters on the feet and getting people better shoes. And we bring socks and we bring all of those things to keep people healthy. And then If somebody has a minor injury, getting them to where that minor injury won't become a major injury. And EMTs are doing that as well. I mean, it's just the overlap with EMTs, paramedics, doctors, nurses, street medics, wilderness first responders. All of us are moving towards not just the gung-ho, high-adrenal event kinds of medicine, and going to the let's maintain people's health, let's try and prevent some of the gung, the need for the gung-ho medicine if we possibly can. And that's that's been important for all of us.
0: It really is. And and it's interesting to see the similarities that exist. And and with that, Ann, I ask you, where do you see the world of street medic and street medicine? going? Do you you see it now, since we're dealing with so many events that are bringing about civil unrest, do you see it becoming more formalized? Do you see it uh, getting funding sources? Do you see it uh, getting a credential or something to that effect? Or if not, are you hopeful that that might be something that comes about in the future as we're seeing more and more of these events uh, come upon us?
1: Well. You know, the way I see street medics is the way I have seen street medics since the 60s. And that is that we are part of the progressive, what we call the progressive movements, that we are part of Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock and Seattle and all of these movements. We are always going to be integral parts of that. I don't see street, I mean, street medics already have a credentialing system. It's very informal. It's very, um, it depends on people vouching for one another across the country. Somebody who's been play, trained out in Seattle will know who trained them, and then they, if they come to say the Philadelphia area where I'm working currently, somebody in Philadelphia will know that person, and that's how we maintain who trained who to do what. But many, 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 many street medics have also either started as, as I did, I was already a nurse when I became a street medic. Uh, I've been a nurse practitioner and street medic for over 50 years, but so many street medics who started as complete civilians with no training took street medic training, became street medics, worked in the streets and then went to nursing school, went to become EMTs and paramedics, went to become doctors. And so that's the credentialing stream that I see street medics moving through. Many of us are both. So we have our own credentialing, and I don't see that becoming paid or, you know, mainstream anytime in the foreseeable future. On the other hand, there will always be street medics who then go on to become doctors. Doctors By the way, we insist as street medics that if your local doctor wants to be a street medic, they need to do a 10 hour bridge training because there's a lot of stuff that those doctors don't know.
0: (laughs) It's it's real. It's really so cool. And I mean, it's it's the underground world of street medic. It's its own culture. It's really neat. It's like a it's like it's like this really neat society that you belong to.
1: Yes, as, as is being an EMT. If sure. you think about it, how many of you have met, not necessarily ER docs, but certainly your average internist has no idea how to even get a stretcher to open up? Yep, this
0: is the truth. There's no question <laughs> there are, about that. There
1: are skills that are specific. This is why we train doctors to be street medics, and then street medics get training to be doctors or EMTs or paramedics or nurses or nurse practitioners. Yeah. You know, we
0: have all of them. I'll tell you, and this this has really been an interesting podcast. I really have learned so much about it. You are a breath of fresh air and a wealth of knowledge. And if you haven't yet, you should write a book about this whole thing well, because I, I would be I, the first online. Book, but
1: it's and it's kind of about global stuff. Yes,
0: it's, it's fun. It's, it's awesome. And, and I really do want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you for all that you have done over so many years again going into areas where certainly it wasn't safe and taking on that role of of helper and doing it without any concern for yourself or your own well-being it certainly deserves uh commendation and i really do appreciate it and i know so many across the world do as well so thank you for that and thank you for coming on with us today
1: well you're very welcome and and i do it for a lot of reasons not the least of which and this should resonate with most of your readers I'm an adrenaline junkie with a rescue fantasy. So in a sense, this is less altruistic than it looks on the surface. Just saying. Okay.
0: <laughs> and I'm closing with that because that's, that is basically sums up you in what I've learned in the last 22 minutes. So, Again, thank you for joining us today. And thanks to the listeners. This has been another episode of EMS World Podcasts. Remember to save the date and mark your calendars for EMS World Expo 2021. Hopefully, we will be in person October 4th to the 8th in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we will see you all there. Again, And thank you. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you in the future.
1: This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.